verses 1 through 12. Next Sunday morning, we're going to return to our study in the book of Acts. But because of the season, we took a bit of a diversion. I hope it was helpful and encouraging. We're going to continue this morning by looking at Matthew 2, his account of the birth of Christ. We'll be reading 12 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them the time of the star that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back, the wor- your, back word to me, that I might come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented his gifts. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream dream, (coughs) that they should not return to Herod, they departed from there for their own country another way. We'll look at example this morning. There's a lot here, but we're just going to focus on an example of extravagant worship. Does not look like such a thing, but it is here. We want to look at Composure, posture, practice, and presentation. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and its truth, and we're thankful for its power. May you take control of our lives and our hearts and even our minds as we submit to you this day, as we adore our Lord and our Savior, our God and our Father, and his Spirit and his word. We humbly ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is tragic. It is even very unfortunate that the Christmas story, as we know it, has been apparently diminished to nothing more than a quaint fairy tale. During this time of year, we see all kinds of things coming out of Hollywood and on video and different ideas, different aspects, things about 
good old St. Nicholas and his background and it, all of that stuff, most of, nearly all of it we see on television, as far as his life is concerned, is fiction. There was someone named Nicholas. He was a bishop in the land of Turkey. And his, we've talked about this before, his faithfulness kind of inspired this good old Saint Nicholas whose ministry and whose heart for giving seemed to impress so many people. That carried on through the centuries and it just kind of blown way out of proportion. Now he's somebody that lives at the North Pole. It's kind of unfortunate and tragic that I've had people get very upset because I let the cat out of the bag. I should have learned a long time ago not to tell the secrets about Santa Claus. It's kind of tragic and unfortunate that when it comes to the story of the birth of Christ, it's, it's almost considered by those outside of the church as another fairy tale, another fictitious story, something that encourages our hearts, that warms us, that makes us feel fuzzy on the inside. It is a lesson or a moral of the story, certainly, is acceptable to the rest of the world, so it's tolerated by those who do not believe. It's a good example. We should be more giving. We should be more tolerant. We should be more loving. That's okay. That's fine. But the world doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus. Many of the people in the world, most of the people in the world don't even believe that his birth actually happened. But I'm here today to say that Christians do not believe in fairy tales. The Bible is not a book of fairy tales. The Bible is a book of fact, a book of truth, a book of wisdom, a book of redemption. But we see that there is a conflation of tradition and legend versus truth of scripture. A confusion of what has been traditionally handed down by the church that's kind of become a legend and what is actual truth. So when the world looks at what's written in the Bible and it doesn't match up with what has been professed by the church or what's been allowed by the church, they say, you all don't even know what you believe. So this must be a fairy tale. What am I talking about? You know, you're very familiar with what I'm talking about. Every year the story is told. And, it usually fo and the story around Christmas usually focuses on the birth of Christ, right? And they're always displayed in this story of Christ who attended Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, camels, 
in the last century, there's a little drummer boy in there somewhere. I, we don't know where he came from. But when we look at scripture, there are two different accounts around the same event. Both are correct, but we must remember that both do not speak about the same details. The problems arise when we look at tradition, what has been permitted by the church or what has been presented by the church. And I'm talking about the church at large. I'm not talking about our congregation. Primarily, the Roman Catholic Church, tradition and truth. What does the Bible say? Traditions are oversimplified stories to teach illiterate masses during the early church. When the skeptic begins to investigate and they discover the confusion, he convinces them that our faith is immature, it's childlike doesn't hold up to the test of veracity. And they think that we really don't know or we really don't care what we believe. Let me kind of distill this down a little bit. Years ago, everyone knew what a medley was. You get some music, you get some similar songs, and you just kind of blend them together, one right after another, and you get a medley of songs into one song. The modern-day culture calls that a mashup. It usually began in, in music, and now it's even in movies. My wife and I were watching one the other evening. It was a Christmas, one of those dumb, lame Christmas stories that they put out so much of this year. And we watched, this is, this is just another story of Overboard in the Snow mixed in with It's a Wonderful Life, a mashup for Christmas. We see them everywhere if we know what it's looking for. But we think that modern man invented the mashup, but that's what was going on with the church years ago, combining Luke's account and Matthew's account and putting them together one story. That's not the way it happened. In Matthew's account and Luke's account, we see different details. Matthew gives us a lineage. Starts with Abraham, goes through King David, and comes down to Joseph. Luke's account gives us a lineage. Starts with Mary and goes backwards through her lineage all the way back to Adam. One is not contradicting the other, just different details giving different testimony to the veracity of Christ's birth. He was a born king. Proper lineage. Matthew's account is very brief. Luke gives a great deal of details. Matthew tells us about the wise men. Luke tells us about the shepherds. They weren't there on the same day. Matthew tells us about King Herod. Luke talks about Caesar Augustus being in rule. Matthew talks about angels in the dreams of Mary and Joseph. And Luke tells us about angels singing to shepherds on the hillside. 
two different stories about one event, different details. They do not deny one or the other. But the problem is, so many times, the church, through the ages, has just conflated the two, brought them together in order that people can get the story, but it's end up being confusing. And might I say detrimental. Christianity has been a prevailing culture influence, cultural influence for centuries, particularly regarding the celebration of Christ's birth, Christ's death, and his resurrection. We need to understand so that we may be able to defend our faith when the skeptic and the unbeliever brings up these questions. We need to be able to tell them. We're not here to believe, we do not believe in fairy tales. I want to kind of focus in on our text this morning now and ask you, why is Christmas important to you? It's a very exciting time of year. From our childhood all the way up, we kind of get excited about this day. And I must confess, it's usually very mercenary. What will I get? I remember when I was a youngster, I never liked getting new underwear or new socks. I wanted toys. And as I've grown older, I've realized I don't always get what I really want. What I really want is too expensive. But I've always wished that someone knew me well enough to give what I really want. I don't really need it. I just want it. That's a bit of confession. And you don't need to know what I want because it's it. I'll never have it. Well, if you're curious, it's a 1935 Auburn Motel Speedster, but. <laughs> I'd never have it. Too expensive. Why is Christmas really important to you? I've heard more than once it said, if it weren't for the children, Christmas wouldn't be worth the bother. Our personal understanding of Christmas has been conditioned by external influences. When I was a youngster, and you've probably seen it too, the Charlie Brown Christmas specials that they broadcast, I would highly recommend them because the one I'm thinking about, Linus stands up in front of his school and recites Luke chapter 2. Gospel on national television. Praise of the Lord. They didn't see it coming. But even in that program, they said, Christmas has been commercialized. Oh, good. Let's get their money. Let's sell them stuff. Stuff they don't need, stuff they think they want. 
and they never know that it's the Antichrist behind all of it trying to get us distracted from what we should be doing, and that is worshiping him. As grown-ups with children, Christmas became at first an annual labor of love because we love our children and we want them to have what they need and even some things that they think they want. As good parents, you learn to do without the things you might want so your children can receive the things you never did. I'm not sure about the wisdom behind that. I'm guilty of it. But you usually realize before that Christmas Day is done, after they've opened up their present, they're usually bored with it by supper time. If it wasn't for the children, Christmas wouldn't be worth it. We as Christians, we as a church, have lost it, have missed it. We've never really seen it. Fill in the blank. Where Have you lost it? Have you missed it? Have you never really seen it? Why do we remember Christmas at all? What is its purpose? That's what we want to focus on this morning. I know, preacher, we're supposed to remember Jesus' birthday. Jesus is the reason for the season. Please, don't brush this aside as if your attitude were that of a teenager who's been reminded to take out the, the tenth time, don't forget to take out the trash. Okay. Every year it's so easy to get caught up in the rush. It's so easy to be overwhelmed by the din of the noise, the busyness, and it just produces anxiety. That, too, is a dis- distraction. It's so easy to be intimidated by self-inflicted fear that we're going to forget someone's gift, and they will consequently be offended because we forgot them. And in all of that, we forget to really worship the Lord. Yes, if you're a Christian, you may sense his presence during the Christmas season, and I'm sure you do, but be honest. Be honest. You don't have to answer out loud. Be honest with yourself. Be honest between you and the Lord. During this Christmas season, everyone else and everything else comes first, doesn't it? Before he does. I know you don't mean to do it, but we get so busy, we get so distracted, we forget about our quiet time, we forget about, and when we get to worship on Sunday morning, we just get so stressed. Do we really believe, do we really celebrate the traditional legend that's conflated and confused and not really accurate? Or do we celebrate the truth? Let me look at a few points from our text in Matthew. Matthew was a Hebrew. He wanted his people to understand that Jesus Christ is king of the Jews. His style of writing included aspects that other Jews would look for when they read his gospel. He wanted to convince his people that Christ was the Messiah, 
Why would he include an account of mysterious Gentiles offering gifts? Well, in Matthew's day, it was forefront in their mind. They knew. They remembered because the stories, there is an oral tradition throughout all Hebrew history. They, tell, they like telling stories, not telling lies, but recorded history from one generation to the other. Not necessarily written down, not divinely inspired, but they remember. It's part of their habit, part of their practice. And Matthew's story makes reference to something all Israelites remembered. And you might remember the dark part of history for the Israels was their captivity in Babylon that extended into the Persian rule after Babylon fell. It was from Babylonia and from Persia where the tradition of the wise men or the magi come. Their descendants studied the books, studied the writings, studied the prophecies, and looked for a star. And it wasn't a mental thing. It wasn't an academic thing for them. I believe that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this. Because Christ was not just king of the Jews. He had come to redeem the sins of the world. So why not have some Gentiles come in and honor his birth? They demonstrate to us extravagant worship. We want to look at their composure, their posture, their practice, and their presentation. What kind of composure dictates your worship? What kind of composure controls your worship? That's what I would ask each and every brother and sister here today. In verse 10 of our text, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The wise men were anticipation, low. As I mentioned before, they had studied the prophecies, they had read the books, they looked, they watched for the promised sign in the heavens, and they rejoiced. That was their composure. They were glad. They dropped what they were doing and rode hundreds of miles to find him. And I tend to go along with John MacArthur on this. He believes that the star, wasn't it, it appeared in the heavens, but it wasn't necessarily a conjunction of stars like some astrologers say. I believe it very likely could have been a manifestation of the Shekinah glory because they said they followed the star. It guided them there. They were glad to worship. Are we as Christians glad to worship on Sunday? Not just on Christmas Day when it falls on the 25th, but are we, do we look forward to it? Do we rejoice to be here? Is that our composure when we come into the house of the Lord on Sunday morning? It's part of extravagant worship. What about the posture? 
In verse 11 it says, When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down. Throughout history, it's been the practice of some church denominations to include a lot of posturing in worship. This is one of the proof texts where they get it. If you go into a Catholic church or if you go into an Episcopalian church or one of the more traditional high churches, you're going to find they're called kneelers, little benches that fold up underneath the pew in front of you. And there are parts during the time of worship before the sermon where you get up and down, up and down, praying. And they expect you to get on your knees. When the wise men came to the Lord Jesus and saw him, they fell down. It doesn't say they bowed. I mean, they went prostrate, face down before him. These were wealthy noblemen bowing to a child born in poverty. They believed there was something exceptional about this child. They understood why he was there. They saw the value of his life and his gift. That's why they brought him gifts of gold, he was a king, frankincense, that's what the Old Testament priest would prepare, use to prepare all of the offerings brought to the temple. They knew that his life would be sacrificed. And he brought myrrh, the spice used for embalming. They knew why he came. Composure. They came with exceeding joy. They rejoiced to see him, and they bowed down before him. Psalm 91, 95, beginning of verse 1. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now we can go through the motions of posture. We can go through the motions of kneeling. And it can mean nothing. But our physical bodies are tied to spiritual souls. What the soul desires the body will very often display. What the soul desires, the body will very often display. If your soul desires the Lord, your body is going to behave very differently. If your soul desires the things of this world, your body is going to demonstrate that desire. 
how do you submit to the Lord? How do you worship him? Is it just a task? Is it just a chore? Is it a part of your to-do list? Or do, do you truly adore him? Do you desire to be in his presence? Do you rejoice to worship him? Is your composure joy and gladness to come into his presence with thanksgiving? Do you gladly fall before him? Mind, body, and soul. Not just your body. Do you submit your will to him? What about practice? Again, in verse 11, when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Both of these are tidly, tied closely together. Worship as practice and worship as posture. That's why I'm saying that the body and the soul or the body and the heart are very often tied together. Do you desire to worship him often? Or is worship only an hour out of your busy week? You know what? That's one of the biggest frustrations about pastors. We only get maybe 30 to 45 minutes every Sunday to give you something out of the word. That's why we try and encourage you on your own. Get into the word daily. Worship daily. If you can't do it daily, do it frequently. But too many times, too many times across America, and I've seen it more in my generation. I remember, bless their hearts, I grew up in a church where everybody had a Schofield Bible. And it was always the same Bible. And what I enjoyed hearing is when the pastor read that Bible and he turned the page, you could hear everybody in the congregation turning the page. You're hard-pressed to find anybody bringing a Bible to church anymore because the church puts them in the pews. I don't need to carry my Bible. I think that's kind of tragic. But what I was going to say this is kind of a challenge. Charles Spurgeon said something to the effect that he can go into the homes of most of his congregation and write his name in the dust on top of their Bibles because Christians don't pick it up during the week. And they should. They need to. It kind of reveals if, if you're not practicing worship at home personally, you're not going to enjoy worship on Sunday. It kind of reveals what you're your practice will reveal what your posture is, and your posture will reveal what your composure is. It's just a bother. It's just a check off your to-do list. Well, I need to be obedient. Don't really like it. But I need to be obedient. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. And everyone has us have heard messages on that, sermons on that, talking about keeping secret sins that quench the spirit. It doesn't, I don't know that it quenches it. I just, it's, we understand it as 
not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit because he is not going to bless rebellious sin in our life. He is not going to bless, bless here's an old King James word, stubborn contumacy. I just refuse to repent. But just because we're here every Sunday morning and we're not very happy about it, doesn't mean that we're going to enjoy the blessings of the Lord. We're coming to January 1st, and everybody's going to, I know a lot of people have just kind of dismissed it. They don't even make New Year's resolutions anymore, but for the Christian, we should be trying to improve our life every single day as far as obedience to the Lord. If we can get on our knees as believers and say, Lord, let me find within my heart a desire for you, a joy and gladness in you, where we can enjoy worshiping you. We will see revival. I know some of us have been praying for revival over there or in his heart or in her heart. My heart. My heart, Lord. Composure, posture, practice. Do you desire to worship him often? Or is worship only an hour out of your busy week and presentation? Verse 11 again. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And, they, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've already talked some about this, but these were very expensive gifts. These were extravagant they weren't cheap you know we we tradition here's another point just as a sidebar tradition says there were three wise men but scripture does not give us how many there were they brought three gifts but it doesn't give us how many. They probably came with an armed entourage for safety's sake because they were traveling hundreds of miles across bandit-infested wilderness with expensive gifts. Probably had a small squad or army with them. That's probably why Herod was quite alarmed when they showed up at the gate. Where's the newborn king? Give him your best. He is worthy. One of the things that I, I started not to say a couple of weeks ago, very often when someone wears something out or gets tired of it at home 
and there's still some use in it. It might be an appliance, it might be a tool, it might be, well, the church can use it. It might be a toy that he can throw in the nursery, use it up, and give it to the church. That's not giving the Lord your best. Does he have your best? Is he not worthy of your best? Notice I'm not pointing my finger now. Quite frankly, if I did that, it'd be pointing three right back at me. But he does deserve our best. In the book of Revelation chapter 4, describing the throne room of heaven. And the slain lamb sitting there. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It doesn't look like much when we read this story about these wise men coming, but it was extravagant worship. How extravagant is our worship for the Lord? A lot of churches have, compared to what we do here, a lot of churches have extravagant worship. They've got choirs, they've got orchestras, and it's quite a presentation. But in the courts of heaven, your worship can be just as extravagant if your heart is right, if your heart is his, if you enjoy being here, if you bow before him, if you worship him and if you give him your best as you leave here. Heaven and earth heralded his birth. Angels sang and a star appeared. And today we still remember it and we still celebrate it. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord and Savior, for your faithfulness to us and for your word and its truth. Challenge our hearts this morning as we apply ourselves to your will, to your instruction, to your word. Help us, dear Father, to be yours faithfully. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we finish up our time together through the 